What's up, Epic Film fans? Thank you for tuning in to Epic Film Guys B-Sides Thanksgiving Edition. It really does mean a lot to us that you're here. But before we jump in, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Evil Tea Company. Based out of upstate New York and using only the finest ingredients, Evil Tea crafts blends of tea that can be enjoyed by the living and the dead alike. So if you're listening to this on Thanksgiving Day, tomorrow, Black Friday, they will be unleashing their holiday blend, Sleigh Ride, a delicious banana macaroon herbal tea that comes in a limited edition tin. Your bones are going to need some warming this winter, so don't miss out. Use the promo code EPICFILMGUYS for 15% off your order at www.eviltcompany.com. And now, on with the show. sauce it's not cranberry sauce loy sauce (laughs) welcome ghouls ghosts all you slashers out there to an extremely special thanksgiving edition of epic film guys b-sides this is that segment that you tune into every month where we talk about the dark underbelly of horror cinema and a very special movie on this episode loy sauce a movie that embodies the holiday of Thanksgiving, which is today, the holiday we are all celebrating in the United States. Turkey Day, some people like to call it. We're going to be talking about Blood Rage, also known as Nightmare on Shadow Woods, also known as Slasher, also known at one point as Complex. This movie had more fucking names than a roadside hooker. But <laughs> Well, Complex is just an awful name for a slasher film. Slasher is just hopelessly generic, and Nightmare at Shadow Woods, uh, which, while a majority of the film takes place in an apartment community, it might make you think that this is a camp slasher. Yeah. I Na- mean, N- Nightmare at Shadow Woods, that's a camp slasher. It, Although, has, it has elements of a camp slasher, 100%, but... Yeah, and, and you could argue that this is a camp slasher, just of a different variety. A campy slasher, if you will. It, it, it attempted to create its own subgenre. But before we go any further, see, we're jumping right in, ladies and gentlemen. We already had our fucking turkey. I already had, well, no booze. It's still sober November. We got to tell our listeners, because this is a, a lesser seen horror movie. This is not an everybody's favorite list or anything. What is Blood Rage all about, man? Uh, It's difficult to know where to begin. <laughs> this film's absurd. And yes. I'm I'm not even entirely sure that it exists. 
like The Room or Troll 2, it is so singularly strange that there's a morbid fascination to watching play out what feels like a fever dream. Yeah, I can kind of see where you're going with that. It's, it's an extremely strange movie. There's a lot of interesting choices that are made in there. Um, but one thing is for sure, it's fucking fun. And it's a movie that I think that every single horror fan should start watching on Thanksgiving. Much like you watch Christmas Evil or Silent Night, Deadly Night on Christmas. Just like you watch John Carpenter's Halloween on Halloween. And some of you that watch Critters 2 on Easter, this is the one for Turkey Day. And I think one of the biggest mistakes they made when they were doing the small amount of marketing for this film, that even, you know, the actual amount of marketing that it had, was to not market it as a Thanksgiving slasher. I mean, the whole movie centers around Thanksgiving dinner and all these events surround it. Absolutely. And and for my money, this is the ultimate Thanksgiving horror movie. People like to say, oh, thanks killing. But thanks killing, that's trash in comparison. Well, it's trash to begin with, but it's trash, especially in comparison to Blood Rage. Um, The story, such that it is, takes place and in fact was shot in Jacksonville, Florida. Again, you'd think about the title, Nightmare at Shadow Woods, and you think of it would take place at a summer camp somewhere or in the woods somewhere. But no, Jacksonville, Florida is where our film takes place. (laughs) But we open at a drive-in theater, and drive-in movie theaters are so in vogue during these COVID times, so it feels fitting. But nobody in this film is wearing a mask, certainly. And in fact, it's... It seems like everyone there is swapping as much bodily fluid as humanly possible. This was the heyday, Loisos. When you went to the drive-in, there were two specific reasons why you were going. Some people, I'd say probably about 20% of them, were going to watch a movie on the big screen outside. The other 80% were going to get blowjobs, make out. Fuck somebody up the ass. I mean, that's really, I mean, back in the day, that's where a lot of teenagers would go was the movie theater, particularly the drive-in, because you were left alone. You were on your own and you could, in the dark, feel around. I mean, you know where I'm going with that. But quite literally here, I mean, you see people making out on the hood of their car and we're going to get to it in a minute, but we actually see some fornication going on. Oh. And And you also get a cameo by Ted Raimi. Yes. Ted Raimi. Sam's brother in his uh, feature film debut. Feature film debut as the condom salesman, which this (laughs) is a thing, ladies and gentlemen. This condom salesman did exist. They still do exist today. They may look a little bit more prestigious and professional when they're sitting in there taking your quarter and when they hand you a washcloth or paper towel when you wash your hands. But you can still buy condoms in bathrooms in some places. Um, How effective would those condoms be, though? Because they're pinned with safety pins. To his, the inside of his jacket. Good eye, Lois. I didn't even notice that. So they have holes poked in them. I mean, maybe he strategically (laughs) placed them so the hole is not in the rubber itself. I think you're digging a little bit too deep into a non-point here. But yes, we see a character buying a condom. He actually says out loud, I like Trojan. And then he buys a condom. Because he knows he's at the drive-in. He knows he's going to get laid that night. But the opening of this movie, Lois Sauce, is probably in my top three favorite things about it. Now, they actually shot at two specifically separate drive-ins. They used a drive-in called Route 25 Drive-In in New Jersey for all of the outside shots and a drive-in outside of Jacksonville called Midway Drive-In for all the interiors, which is 
interesting that they use two separate drive-ins. But for me, the first time I watched this movie, being a huge advocate of drive-in theaters, as we've talked about a million times on this show, made me super excited. I'm like, oh my God, this movie's opening at a vintage drive-in. It immediately gave me a breath of nostalgia. And I mean, what we see here is one of our main characters, Maddie Simmons. Not the producer of National Lampoon's Vacation. <laughs> and she's making out with her date mm, and mm. her date wants to get it on, man. And he's like, don't worry about the kids. It's fine. In which Todd and Terry proclaim mom's at it again. And they escape the station wagon. And then we see our character, Terry. He finds a bright and shiny, beautiful, brand new hatchet. He Just looks at that thing somewhere in the back of a truck. He looks at that thing like it's that G.I. Joe he's always wanted for Christmas. And two seconds later, he finds that young man who bought that Trojan condom in which he's now using to fornicate with a woman. And he's like, get out of here. What the hell are you looking at? And Terry decides to hatchet that motherfucker in the face violently in which the film gives us one of the best kills of the entire movie. Blood splashes all over the popcorn. Dude. Iconic. Image. It's so gruesome and brutal <laughs> and it makes no sense at all. I think we're led to believe that the sexual interactions that he's dealt with witnessing his mom take part in have kind of like scarred him or wronged him in his life. And he's like a sexual deviant in some way. And it makes him want to kill as soon as he sees anyone fucking. Is that self-aware? Is that a commentary on horror movies and the slasher genre in particular where sex equals death? Listen, or I don't think Blood Rage thought that much about the content when they were making this thing. But I'm glad that you were able to find something, you know, there's something smart in there somewhere. Well, I guess Terry just has a predisposition to murder. There's really no reason for him to go out and kill. He just does it. <laughs> yeah, which, again, is hilarious because you don't expect it when you're watching the scene. This kid just to grab a hatchet out of the back of a truck and just go find this dude banging this chick. And, dude, it's it literally the way it's shot. It's gruesome. It's a brutal fucking kill. I think it's one of the best kills in the entire movie, if not the best overall. Because you see the hatchet actually going into his face. And then uh -huh. it's stuck in there, and like all the, the 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 actual cuts are really deep, and oh, it's hard to watch, even for being a huge fan that I am. And then he immediately wipes blood on his brother Todd's face, puts the hatchet in his hand. He just stands there. Todd hurt him. Todd Todd hurt that guy. And then like next thing you know. Todd's in a fucking sanitarium. He's in a mental hospital. Were there really no witnesses to what happened? Well, the, the chick that was being fucked runs away naked. I don't know if she... They're twins, so I don't know if she paid attention to, like, the content of their wardrobe, but she ran off. If, if people had paid more attention to what each other were wearing, we'd have a much different outcome, I'd feel, throughout the entire movie, because people get... Todd and Terry confused very easily, even though they're wearing completely different clothes. But at any rate, yeah, she runs away. So I don't know if she's ever seen ever again. Ass jiggles and all. Yes. But then people start rushing over immediately. And they, they had to have seen Terry smear the blood all over Todd just because of the way that it's shot. You see people running over immediately so no one saw that. People but don't I, pay attention to those types of things in horror films. You know better, Loisos. I guess I should know better. But yeah, Todd gets blamed for the murder, even though I, I guess he's in shock, so he doesn't 
protest or say anything. He just stands there. Again, I feel like the movie would be over much quicker if he had pleaded his case, but whatever. I mean, what a way to start your movie, I think. It's a great fuck. Scene. It's a bomb that blows you the fuck away. And then shortly after that, we see Maddie visiting her poor son, who seems to have been in captivity for the greater part of his life in, in his young adulthood as a college aged kid at this point. And it's funny because they're having a conversation with the counselor, but there's like a narration over it by the counselor. Yes. So you can't really so, hear what the conversation is. Right. So, okay. They're in the office of the psychologist, Dr. Berman played yes. by Marion Cantor, who's the producer of the film. That's correct. She stepped into the role once the original actress dropped out. She just, and it makes sense. She just didn't show up. She's like, fuck this movie. I don't want to be in this. Yeah. And it makes sense, too, because you get the sense right away that this woman is not an actress. <laughs> she was an actress, actually. Oh, uh, okay. Well, at well, least she fancied herself as well. That's what she says, that she was an actress. Could have fooled me. I didn't look at her acting credits, but... This scene is really odd, because it's the only scene in the movie to have voiceover narration. And Dr. Berman is essentially telling the audience about Todd's condition and how she doesn't really believe that he committed the murders, which doesn't really come back into play at any point during the movie. So I don't know why that's relevant, but I can only imagine that this was a much longer scene that was truncated because it was either awkward or unnecessary or simply not working, even though that didn't stop any of the other scenes in the film from being any of Listen, those things. <laughs> the only reason I care about this scene is because we get to see our first hint of Thanksgiving love where Todd receives a piece of pumpkin pie in which he throws it against the wall violently and he's yelling about something. We don't know what he's yelling about. He's probably like, I want to <laughs> like, come home, man. He, he squishes the pumpkin pie in his hand. Then he throws it against the wall. <laughs> I'm like, bro, you just wasted a perfectly good piece of pumpkin pie. I know. And then from there, we we jump to an awesome, amazing, quintessential 80s football scene where we have all the neighborhood clan together, and they're playing some football in the most amazing 80s attire, crop tops, short shorts, and all. And I immediately want all of their clothes for my own wardrobe. But we're introduced to the 10 years older... Terry, who seems to be pretty well adjusted. The boy next door. Um, yeah. And I should mention that both Todd and Terry are portrayed by the same actor. And I have to give kudos to Mark Soper, who does an excellent job at playing both characters. Yeah. The good twin and the bad twin, basically. And the way he differentiates the two with, you know, his body language, the way he speaks, it's a really accomplished performance because you almost forget that the characters are being portrayed by the same actor. Well, the first time I watched it, man, I was actually convinced it was two twins because they actually did so much with the wardrobe and with the hair. The hair, you know, with with Todd, it's all messy and, like, gelled up in his face. And then with Terry, it's, like, slicked back. And Mark, when he actually prepared for the role, was never a fan of slashers, but I guess he prepped by watching other horror movies. And he created a list for each different character of mannerisms and traits that he would do to differentiate the two. So when you saw them on screen, and I, I, th I think at least from, from my eye, at least, um, they're very individual. They are two different characters for the most part. I mean, even the way he stands as Todd is very meek. He's hunched over and Terry's very stand straight, kind of like a really athletic built guy. So yeah, Definitely. I think for, for what he gives us, I mean, we'll get to it a little bit like, 
when we get to Terry being the killer and the way he fucking walks down the street, like it's Saturday night fever and that motherfucker, <laughs> you know, bouncing around like he's dancing or whatever. But I mean, for the most part, he does a pretty good job in the movie. All right. So a majority of the film takes place at shadow woods apartment complex. And already we get a taste of the films. Should I say interesting editing? <laughs> Because they're all around the Thanksgiving table. And it's like they wanted to use all the footage they had. So in addition to a shot of everyone around the table reacting to a funny story, it's almost like the editor said, let's include each individual close-up of each actor laughing. The scene opens and they're laughing and you don't know anything about why they're laughing at all. (laughs) And then at one point when like the toast is proposed you see individual close-ups of each actor holding up their glasses and taking a drink it's like the film is full of awkwardly prolonged edits like that i also think it's interesting that the the two new neighbors that literally just moved in that you meet during the football scene like they're invited to their thanksgiving dinner like randomly well they're being nice neighbors justin's hospitality i guess which is i mean the meal looks good and all. I think one of my favorite things about that entire scene, when they're sitting at the Thanksgiving table, it looks like you're going to get a chance to meet the rest of the family. My psychotic brother just escaped. That's exactly what you want to hear on Thanksgiving Day. Right. So Todd, I guess Todd has escaped the mental institution. We never see how. And Terry, once Terry hears the news, he has a very understated reaction. He goes, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which you think, <laughs> I guess in his head, he's thinking, this is the perfect opportunity for me to go out and cause some trouble and blame it all on my twin brother. Um, yeah, because leading up to this, we're, there's no indication that he's killed anybody else No, in between that time frame. He's been a good boy. But I think he's triggered, though, because Maddie and her boyfriend, Brad, yeah. right? Yeah, the apartment complex fucking manager. Right. Are they get so, free rent from that shit? I, I would hope so. <laughs> Uh, but they announced that they're getting married, which really upsets Terry. And then, Terry, uh, Terry has some serious mommy yeah, issues yeah, because whenever he sees his mom kissing another man, he gets the urge to go out and murder. There's this really strange, like, psychosexual thing that he has with his mom. I don't know. Like, when he finds out that his mom's getting married, he puts his arm around her in a very sexual way. And then he's, like, standing there holding his mom, like, really close, like, rubbing her back. It's not like a son and mom type of... No, it's very Oedipal. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, that that's super creepy. And then, so it's around this point where you realize that the script is composed entirely of non sequiturs. Because Dr. Berman and her assistant Jackie show up. And Jackie's holding, he's brandishing a tranquilizer gun. <laughs> so Terry opens the door and is immediately he's confronted with it. Yeah. yeah, threatened with a gun to his head. And um, Maddie comes to the door and Dr. Bremen asks, uh, you know, she asks Dr. Bremen, did you find him? And Dr. Bremen says, no, we haven't even looked yet. And then, <laughs> and then Maddie turns and notices the gun and she sh- exclaims, what's that gun? So... Already, you discover that very few lines relate to the previous line. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Um, Then Brad arrives into the shot, and he says he needs to go back to his office for some reason. Why does he need to go back to his office? I don't remember why he needs to go back to his office. Yeah, so he says he needs to to go back, apparently. I I guess, and listen to Jesus Radio. 
But he says, I'll be back. Don't worry. I won't be long. And then Maddie says, okay, but just don't be long. And he says, I won't be long. And we all know what that means in a horror movie. Whenever you say, I'll be right back. Yeah, but like, who talks like this? There's the moment there's the moment where Maddie's boyfriend is carving the turkey and Maddie tells everybody dig in and there's this pause where like everyone just looks at her and then she goes I I meant doesn't she say something like oh I meant the the other food on the other stuff yeah so (laughs) it's like they it's like they sit there for a second it's like we can't dig in to the turkey while it's being carved. So you have to like you have to wonder was that written into the script? Was that all this shit ad libbed? I mean, uh, yeah, like who would write such inane dialogue? <laughs> listen, I gotta get this out of the way. I've been biting my tongue, but listen, Louise Lasser as Maddie Simmons is absolutely fucking terrible in this movie. She's awful in this movie, dude. She actually had an acting coach apparently on set for this movie. Now, dude, she actually comes from a background of being a pretty good accomplished actress. Uh, she worked with Woody Allen, who she was married to for four years uh, with a couple of his movies. She was on the Mary Tyler Moore show. She had been on the cover of people magazine for God's sakes, but something about her in this movie, uh, the fucking disgusting pigtails. And dude, someone needs to tell this bitch. She needs some conditioner in her fucking hair. Cause it's these, this frizzy wig puff. It's there's some weird choices that she makes. Apparently that all came from her head on this character due to the cleavage. I can't get over the cleavage. What the fuck was going on there? I, I, I'm not exactly sure who approved the wardrobe or the the um, makeup and hair on this character. Um, and she sounds like she smokes about a carton of fucking Marlboros a day. Well, she probably did. If you listen to her speak about the role now, like in modern day, she claims that she approached the role to make it like make her character more eccentric. Like there's some really interesting choices. Like when you see her like with her leg spread sitting in front of the fucking fridge, just eating like <laughs> stuffing out of a bowl, eating, eating green beans with her bare hands, She's drinking wine and vacuuming and some really interesting things. But there's something about her. I can't look at her face, dude. I'll tell you what right now. And it's not being cruel. She's not an ugly woman. She actually looks strangely like Mia Farrow a little bit during the seventies. If you look at the pictures of them, who was also married to Woody Allen. She had a type, clearly. She was a, she was a nice-looking woman then, but there's something about the way she looks in this movie and her smile and her hair and the wardrobe that I'm like, I can't eat looking at her. I can't eat looking at her <laughs> performance of this movie. Is that weird to say? No, I also think the, the harsh lighting doesn't really do her any favors either. The film looks... It almost looks like a TV show or something. It doesn't look like a feature film. <laughs> it's it's it, The production value for the most part, is very low. The lighting is very harsh and just kind of like shining on the actors. So I, I don't think it's entirely her fault. I think well, it's a combination of the performance and the production. And the every choice that she made that had to do with the character. Now, so much so that director John Rubin actually left the movie halfway through shooting due to having issues with her. Like, I guess she was a real pain to deal with on set. They were not getting along and somehow the producers convinced him to come back and after that, the editor tried to take over as director and it didn't work out. They convinced John Rubin to come back and finish the movie. So blood rage almost didn't happen because of the decisions that Louise Lasser had. And 
I mean, she's definitely one and of apparently the most... her apparently her episode of Saturday Night Live that she hosted or guested on, Lorne Michaels has refused he refused it to be rerun uh, because it was so disastrous and the the cast didn't like her at all. They th- they thought she was certifiably nuts. So <laughs> well, it makes sense one hundred percent. But I think I think <laughs> the meat or the turkey of this movie, if you will, is really, you're watching this for the kills. I mean, you don't watch a movie called Blood Rage for the acting. You're watching it for the kills. And the kills are plenty and amazing by Emmy winner Ed French, also Academy Award nominated, who went on to do work on Terminator 2, most recently worked on House of Cards. He did all of the kills and makeup on this movie. And that's the one thing I would say that's a showcase here, Loisos, is the kills are all fucking amazing. I think just jumping right in from where we're at in that point in the movie, we see Brad, who's just recently engaged, get his hand cut off, and we see his hand still holding the beer on the floor, jiggling around, crushing a can of beer. That's my favorite part of the movie. Is it really your favorite part? Yes. Because... First of all, I love shots in horror movies where you can see a severed limb with blood shooting out from the stump. That's one of my favorite things. And this movie delivers that in spades. But I also love the aftermath of that scene where Maddie comes from behind him and she kind of like taps him on the shoulder and his head falls forward onto the table and splits apart so you can see his brains just Just go all over the... Gushing all over the table. (laughs) It's so incredibly fucked up and it makes most of the Friday the 13th films look tame by comparison. It definitely does, man. And I actually had to look this up because I kept trying to figure out what kind of beer was in his hand. I'm like, hmm, it looks like PBR. It's not PBR. But the hand that actually, the, the, the prosthetic hand that actually physically crushes the beer can, it's a can of vintage Heilman's old style beer, which I've mm. never, ever heard of before. Apparently it was a popular beer in the 80s in Jacksonville. But I'm like, now I definitely need to find myself a vintage can of that to put in my vintage can collection just because of blood rage. <laughs> but then immediately after that is probably my second favorite thing in the movie. Jackie, who again is wearing like a fucking dress shirt with like, a cutoff it's hoodie. It's a cutoff, yeah. Hoodie with, really a, with like bizarre. a dress shirt underneath it. And he he's looking for Todd and he runs into Terry and he's like, oh man, you guys look really alike. You guys look really alike. He apparently Which no deci- shit, they're identical twins. He, he apparently just decides to sit on someone's back porch and smoke a joint. So he starts smoking joint. He's like, yeah, oh yeah, uh, uh, Dr. Berman said I could rest. So I'm just taking a rest. And he lights the joint and he offers some to Terry and Terry's like, sure. And then which Terry fucking machetes him through the fucking torso. And you see the actual machete coming out the back, string and all, pulling it through. And then to Terry, after he kills him, just turns around and finishes smoking the joint. It's literally like the best thing I've ever seen. (laughs) I mean, the kills in this are outstanding. Honestly, his Academy Award should have been delivered for this movie. Ed French, who also has another role in the film as, who is it? Bill, right? The the babysitter's boyfriend. I don't know. This movie has a lot of extraneous characters. That's right. Yep. But um, there's nothing particularly artful about the way the film is shot necessarily. As I said, it's all very harsh and just kind of very televisual in the way that everything's presented. The actors are just kind of standing in the frame. Uh, and there's there's no like cinematic quality to it there's a couple stylistic flourishes like the machete there, there's one part where a machete is brought down into the shot from off screen and it's, and it's dripping blood, blood yeah dripping on it so uh, there's a couple things like that but for the most part it's pretty ordinary except when you get to the kills which are nothing short of glorious 
And even if you don't see the impact of all of them, there's something quirky or weird about each one of them. My other favorite is when Terry runs into Dr. Berman in the woods and he's stalking her. He like comes up ready to attack. And then the scene cuts to a quiet scene of Maddie pouring wine and dialing a telephone at the same time, (laughs) which I feel like she should pour the wine first and then dial the number or vice versa. Listen, nothing that character does makes any fucking sense in this movie. (laughs) But then it cuts back to the doctor and and she's in half, completely severed in half, screaming, still alive, and blood just oozing everywhere. And my favorite part about that is later on, when Todd comes across the body, he attempts to put together the two halves of the corpse for some reason. (laughs) It's almost a very slightly heartwarming scene he seems like confused like a kid that found a dead animal that's still moving um and apparently this is an idea that mark soper had he's like well what if what what would i do if i came upon this i'd probably try to put her back together because because she was his counselor when he was at the sanitarium so it's like he cares about her he's upset that she's dead (laughs) uh sure (laughs) makes about as much sense as anything else in this movie So we finally get to the point where Todd has made his way back to the apartment complex. Apparently they lived there back then, or he just figured out where they lived. I don't know if they lived in this apartment complex this whole time. I thought they had just recently moved there. That's what I was understanding, but he found them and he's there. And we, we go through these situations where these other characters are getting confusing Todd for Terry and Terry for Todd. Uh, And it doesn't really lead to anything that interesting or anything. Um, But it does lead to Todd almost getting laid. Yeah, the the movie takes a lot of bizarre detours. So so Karen and Terry are dating, yes? Apparently so. Okay, so there's a scene where Karen runs into Todd, who she thinks is Terry. And she basically says, well, not basically, she straight up says, I, wanna... I want you to make love to me. Yeah, I want it, baby. And Todd, who has been locked up in an insane asylum and has not had experience with women, tells her as much. And he says, like, I've never even kissed a girl. Which then prompts her to say... So, you're home for the holidays, huh? <laughs> Small talk, yeah, ensues there. Um, you think she'd just run away immediately. Well, she does. He says, I've never kissed a girl. And she says, well, you really ought to try it sometime. Bye, and runs off. <laughs> so bizarre. Who wrote this? I don't Who know. Who wrote this I know, film? but I, I thank them for writing it. The script is just so full of... Like I said, non sequiturs. There's a there's a moment where Terry announces to Maddie that he's leaving the house, and Maddie is like pleading with him to take a sweater because it's chilly, and she says, "Don't forget your sweater, the blue one." It's like why specify what color the sweater is? It's not for the audience's benefit. So why is that line there? There's a part where Terry goes over to some girl's house who's babysitting. She's the, the new girl, girl in town. The new girl. She's She was at Thanksgiving dinner. She invites him to come over, and she starts coming on to him. But he'd rather watch television, of course. Um, they make small talk. There's, there's, I guess, irony in the fact that Terry, who's in college, is majoring in psychology. I suppose that's meant to be ironic. Um, but anyway, she, she comes on to him. He's not into it. And then in walks the babysitter with her date. They start having a conversation about the fact that she had said that you're welcome to any drinks or any alcohol in the house. And French's character says, you could get in trouble for getting, you know, minors intoxicated. I'm just looking out for you. And Terry says, we're not minors, sir. Good night, as they attempt to leave the house. And then the babysitter says, don't pay any attention to him. He's just looking out for me. 
this sounds like nonsense, but I promise you it doesn't make any more sense in context than it does out of context. And that's what a majority of dialogue in this movie is like, where you're just like, what? Why? Is, why are these characters saying this? There's another part where they're playing video games, and one of the characters says to the other, I'm going to whip you like a stepchild. <laughs> that's, like, that's something I tell you all the time. Was that written, or was that something that was made up on the spot? Listen, Loisos, I think we need to get over the fact that the dialogue in this movie is not only atrocious, it's out of this world bad. But you know what, dude? It doesn't matter because I know that if I sit there and endure it for you know 15 minutes in between every kill, that that next kill will be totally worth all of that mm. dialogue. You're right. You're right. I, I love the scene where the couple is fucking on a diving board. Oh, dude, what's more comfortable than fucking on a diving board? I feel like that'd be a pretty precarious place to have sex, unless you wanted to end up in the pool eventually. Um, and, and very romantic too. All those bright lights on you—you'd think they'd be like, "Let's, let's, you know, let's turn the lights off and be nope, brightly, brightly lit pool. Let's do with this thing." Harsh fluorescent the lights, fluorescent light, yeah, shining on them from somewhere. The, the crew lights, obviously, just shining on the actors. Really, really poorly lit film. But again. Um, Terry shows up and he causes mayhem because, again, sex equals death. In, he, well, he, he machetes them both to death brutally, but he does. He, you could tell that's the thing about Mark Soper's performance in this. You could tell that the the character Terry is enjoying killing. He's always got like this weird grin on his face, and I kind of hinted <laughs> at this earlier on in the discussion. But dude, the way that he moves around when he's carrying a weapon and he's killing, it's it's literally like he's he's going disco dancing or some shit. You know what I mean? He's got this fluidity to everything, but he's having a blast. Look at his face. He's smiling the entire time. Like, there's nothing there's nothing scary about his character. Not a damn thing frightening about him at all. He's got a skip in his step and a song in his heart. That's right. <laughs> it's like he's listening to f- fucking show tunes and headphones that he's killing these people. Oh, man. They should have done that. They should have given him a Walkman and just had him jam. That would have been hilarious, time. dude. Seriously. <laughs> this was the age of the Walkman, too, but... Um, to kind of round things up here, as we, we've said a number of times, the kills are literally what make Blood Rage special. I mean, we, we get some scenes later on. He's just offing every single person. We see him stalking as he dances down the street. But what really makes this movie amazing more than anything in the world is Richard Einhorn's beautiful synth score. Now, you may have probably, known that probably one of the most radical soundtracks to come out of ever. the 80s. Literally. I mean, you may have known his work from Joseph Zito's The Prowler, um, which he also did the score for. But you, Loisos, you claim that he did some prestigious work on some other stuff. He only scored one of my favorite movies of all time, which when I found out this connection, my mind was blown. So 1928, The Passion of Joan of Arc is one of my favorite films of all time. And um, the orchestral score entitled Voices of Light, this composition that he wrote for The Passion of Joan of Arc, he wrote that. And he also wrote the score to Blood Rage, which just, again, blows my mind on how so many this, levels. How is this possible? How, how is it possible that he wrote that? He was born in 1952. Well, this was... Used. Oh, okay. So they added the score to the movie after the fact. Yes. Okay, yes. I understand now. I was like totally confused there. I'm like, holy shit, because I've never Cause seen. Of, I've never seen the Passion of Joan of Arc. Because silent films have usually multiple scores, just because when it was back in the day, you used to have the guy on an organ, off to the side, improvising or. or Listen uh, to you educating me over here. I just can't believe that he did this, as you said, prestigious this 
epic masterpiece of a film and composed this beautiful score with an orchestra and a choir. And then he also did Blood Rage. <laughs> but hey, dude, seriously, like if you compare the score for Blood Rage to a lot of other slashers in the 80s, this thing puts them down in the fucking trash and throws them right the fuck out. It's amazing. It's a fantastic score. Like I immediately get super excited. I get like this this rush of energy whenever I hear the score. So it's it's definitely one of my favorite things about the movie. Absolutely. We got to start talking about Luis Lasser's performance, especially. I mean, you talked about it a little bit, but but she begins suffering a complete and total mental breakdown. She becomes a mess basically at the end of the movie. There, we mentioned the scene where she's sitting on the kitchen floor eating leftovers in front of the open refrigerator. Um, she, there's a part where she's tearfully pleading with a telephone operator to take her call seriously and connect her with her boyfriend, Brad, who's very much dead at this point. But why she doesn't just call him on his telephone directly, I have no idea. I guess she doesn't Why know doesn't number. she just walk down the fucking street? It's like in the same complex. I, I have no idea. Maybe she's afraid to leave the house. I, I, I don't know. Um, and why she decides to confide in the operator her entire life story about her son escaping from a mental hospital. She corrects herself and she says, no, no, he's not escaping. He's running away from his school. No, not a school, a mental institution. Again, was this improvised? <laughs> I guess you're um, just going to have to chalk it up to being, yes, it probably was, dude. And it's no wonder the operator seems to hang up on her because she's babbling incoherently. Well, I guess, again, going back to what I've, I've heard from interviews with Louise is that she was very aware in some of these scenes that she was going over the top on purpose. She was trying to add something different to the film and... Even Ed French, who was on the set doing all the makeup effects, actually commends her for the gravitas that she brought in her performance to this movie. <laughs> and I'm like, bro, I'm watching something totally different. I think it just plays out differently because you have all these young, like young 20 something like college kid characters that you see in every other generic slasher out there playing their very heightened archetypal generic versions of the characters they are. And then we have this like really broken, strange, sex-loving woman um, who apparently like bangs everybody, you know. But she she's having a breakdown, which Loisos leads to probably one of the most obscure, bizarre endings to any slasher movie that I've ever seen, like ever. Yes. So so spoiler alert: if you've never seen the movie, if you listen to this far, watch the movie first. But yeah, it gets pretty grisly and weird and mean-spirited. So. Terry runs into Karen in the woods um, and a chase ensues. Well, she, first of all, he starts swinging the machete at her and saying, I love you at the same time, which those two actions don't really match up. Uh, but he, but he chases her throughout the complex and she runs back to the babysitter's house and she finds the babysitter's dead. And I don't know how he beat her back to the babysitter's house because she, she's running away from him. It's, and then it's, she it's enters, a slasher film logic. They're and he's just there. there. They're always there. I, yeah, but she takes the baby that she was babysitting and runs out. And I kept wanting her to, to trip and for the baby to tumble out of her arms because there's a, <laughs> there's a moment where she kind of trips over herself and I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be great? And there's also a moment where she runs into, a, into the community pool 
And it looks like she's going to like drop the baby in the swimming pool. I kept hoping that would happen. Dude, when she sits down next to the swimming pool, I'm like, man, you better be careful. You don't sit next to a swimming pool with a baby, which obviously <laughs> she's not holding a real baby. She's just holding a fucking towel in her arms. But I knew, right. I knew when I was watching this, when she's running with the baby, I'm like, Loisos probably wishes as he's watching this, that she trips and falls and falls with all of her weight on the baby. And the baby is splat into a million pieces. Yeah. <laughs> uh. But uh, we are not so lucky. Even that would be too much for Blood Rage. But that also leads to one of my favorite reactions in horror movie history. Uh, When Terry catches up with her and he's behind her on the diving board, when she turns around and notices him, her exasperated reaction is to just go, oh, God. You again? She doesn't doesn't (laughs) scream. She doesn't run away instantly. She looks at him and she just goes, oh, God. As he's back there bouncing on the diving board, which... If you do your research, that pool that they shot in at an apartment complex is still there, and it still looks identical to that, and there's apparently still bloodstains on the floor from when they shot it, but the oh diving God. board is no longer there. We need to go visit this location, Justin. If I ever, dude, if I ever make it down to Florida, I'm definitely going there, because the apartment complexes, which um, I actually looked it up here, they're listed, they were originally listed as Cedar Cove Apartments for the majority of the shoot. And I guess they, they look identical to how they did in the movie. They, they painted the insides, those God awful, terrible, like light fucking baby blues and yellows. Oh, the most gaudy colors known to man. Um, but everything is pretty much the same as it was then, but we got to get to the ending of this movie because I don't know if it makes sense to the rest of the movie or anything. Todd and Terry finally have a showdown and well, Terry gets his because his mom blows him the fuck away. She shoots him like six times, which seems a little extreme. Well, she's had a mental breakdown. I mean, everything that's led up to this at this point, you could tell this lady's a little bit... She's wacky, man. Yeah, but shooting her son six times in the chest? Well, she seems she seems to immediately regret it because she falls to the ground and she's just like gibberish out of her mouth. And... Yeah, she has this impassioned monologue where she's holding... Uh, Todd, who she thinks is Terry, which again, if she had only paid attention to their wardrobes and their hair and their hair and their general demeanor, (laughs) she would, uh, she would instantly recognize them. And it seems weird that she wouldn't know how to differentiate her sons. But anyway, uh, she has this monologue where she's like, you're, you're such a good boy. You're the bestest of the best. She's in denial. She's in denial, man. Right. And when she finally learns that Terry is actually Todd, uh, she decides to shoot herself in the fucking head and the movie ends at that point. Dude, can you imagine being a horror fan and going to see this in cinemas and watching that ending back in 1987? I can't even... Like, the whole rest of the movie is like this super over-the-top, tongue-in-cheek slasher, super fun, you're just having a blast, like, yeah, man, dumb, dumb characters, kill them all! And then, like, it's this very mean-spirited, cold ending with the mom character blowing her brains out does that make any sense to the rest of the movie i don't think it does it's a wonder that more movies don't end in suicide it just feels incongruous with the rest of the movie yeah. comes out of nowhere and the movie just ends i remember the first time <laughs> i saw it i was sitting there like wait a minute that's how this movie's going to end like even when so you you had it screened at alamo draft house a few years ago and it was actually the night of a blizzard and like it Very was like a winter came. winter weather advisory. Like no one was on the roads. I told Danielle, I said, fuck it. We're going, we're still going. We got tickets to blood rage. We're going. And like, we're sitting there in the audience and there was like five people in there with us. And 
you could tell that people were laughing, enjoying the movie. And then when, when it ends, then it was just like dead quiet. Like no one got up from their seats. They're just like, they're probably shocked that the movie yeah. ended this way. This movie makes me miss the theatrical experience more than ever though, because I feel like if the theater were packed, if it were like a dismember the Alamo. Yeah, situation, baby. Dismember the Alamo being the Alamo draft houses. They know annual, they annual to show. horror marathon. I'm just filling people in for people who may not. Um, it's my dream to hear the uproarious laughter that would no doubt fill the room <laughs> during the screening of this movie. But yeah, weird ending. Even the end credits are weird because the credits include special thanks for all of the products featured in the film. The credits thank Nike. They thank Entenmann's Donuts, um, Hoover, vacuum cleaners, Tropicana orange juice. This is something I've never seen in any other movie. Right. So either they received a check for each brand, which is unlikely, or they just thought like, oh, if we don't thank them, we're going to get sued. So uh, but it's just odd because you don't often see each and every brand seen on screen and listed in a lengthy special thanks section in the credits. (laughs) Yeah, no, super long credit scene. And it's funny because if you know, if you were a fan of the movie at the time and you ended up getting the movie on VHS, if you wait until the end credits, you would see where they shot the movie. It actually specifically states the name of the apartment complex and everything because they thank literally everyone in these end credits. You, you could have gone and visited the filming locations of Blood Rage, also known as Slasher, back then. I, w- I wish I were able to go back in time, be on the set, see how they made this movie because... A lot of it, questions. It seems like a lot your question, of questions. you want to sit with the writer. You want to sit with the Academy Award-winning writer, Bruce Rubin, <laughs> and be like, so why did they have to say this? And uh, why did they Again, do that? It's kind of like a Troll 2 or the room scenario where it's like, I just want to be a fly on the wall and just observe the creation of this thing because nothing about the script makes any sense at all. The acting careens from hilariously poor to melodramatic and overcooked. And yet it's not a frustrating movie to watch. In fact, far not from it. All. It's very fun. And it features some of the most unbelievable kill sequences in the entire slasher canon. And this was shot in 1983. It wasn't released until 87. But in 1983, uh, slasher movies were pretty conservative, at least relatively so. I mean, you saw these horror movies get hacked to bits by the MPAA. So the fact that this movie got away with a lot of what they got away with which it makes sense when it was released in theaters. Eventually, they cut out a lot of the yeah, gore sequences. Yeah, a ton of it. A ton of it. But um, no matter how seasoned of a horror fan you are, how rabid of a gore hound that you are, it's really good gore. Really, really good gore. It's great gore. And that's why every Thanksgiving, ladies and gentlemen, you bloodthirsty bastards, you, you need to watch Blood Rage, also known as Slasher. <laughs> also known as Nightmare at Shadow Woods. Yes. And the novelty of it taking place on Thanksgiving makes it like the perfect choice for horror fans around the holiday season. Justin, there are three things I'm thankful for this Thanksgiving. Okay, what are that? What are those things? I, I'm thankful for my health. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful for our wonderful listeners. Aw. And I'm thankful for Blood Rage. I couldn't agree more. And, <laughs> and that's our special Thanksgiving Day b-side episode for you guys something to be thankful for and i couldn't have said it better loy sauce we love you guys we wouldn't be what we are without you and um we got to give it up to you so we hope you guys all enjoy a safe enjoyable happy thanksgiving gobble gobble so loy sauce 
If some of our listeners today are new to the show, tell them where they can find us. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, etc. You can also find us on social media, at Epic Film Guys on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And be sure to join us on our fan group, The Hopesters Dumpster, facebook.com slash groups slash Epic Film Guys. Let's talk movies. We'd love to have you. Yeah, hop in there and say what's up. And that's it for now. We got plenty more content on the way. But again, thank you so, so much for listening. We hope you have a great holiday and enjoy yourself. Listen to some Epic Film Guys and watch Blood Rage. Come on, baby. That's it for now, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, we will see you (gasps) at the movies. I really want a drink. Let's get hammered. Let's get shit-faced. It's not even noon. So? (laughs) When have you known me to care about that?